Israel is such a small market, actually encourage them not to focus on the Israeli market at all. And so most of the Israeli innovation, most of the startups that come out of Israel, they face global markets from day one. And they bring their capabilities, their chutzpah, into solving the most difficult and the most challenging problems and needs the innovative market leaders are looking for. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movements with your host, Andrew Berkowitz, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all around the world. It is great to have you with us today as I have an incredibly special guest, Inbal Ariali, who is an absolute force to be reckoned with. She has been featured as one of the 100 most influential people in Israeli tech and one of the top 100 tech businesswomen speakers in the world. Inbal garnered her entrepreneurial skills during her mandatory military service serving as a lieutenant in Unit 8200, Israel Defense Forces Elite Intelligence Corps, the equivalent of the NSA. For the past 20 years, she embraced leading roles in the flourishing Israeli tech sector and founded a series of programs for innovators. She is currently co-CEO of Synthesis, a leadership assessment and development company whose products and services are jointly developed by veteran experts in the Israeli Defense Force, executive coaches, and one of the foremost talent search companies in the world. Inbal's most recent book, Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship is a fantastic read and was recently named the top book in Audible in the category of entrepreneurship by bookauthority.org. Inbal, I am so excited to have you on the show with us today. Well, same here, Andrew. I'm happy to be uh, joining you. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. And so why don't we just start this off by really just unpacking the word chutzpah for those who don't know and, you know, why is it so ingrained in, in the Israeli culture? And then we'll go from there. Sure. So uh, chutzpah actually has several meanings, and it really depends on, you know, who you're asking. Chutzpah, the, the literal translation of chutzpah means either audacity and grit, and that's the more positive translation of it. In Hebrew, actually, chutzpah means being impolite and rude. But chutzpah for me, um, the way I think of it is actually more than just a word. It's a mindset. It's a collection, a collage of uh, different traits and capabilities and skills that together comprise this persona of, or this, this approach, okay, of a big thinker, someone who's not afraid of trying and even making mistakes uh, or failing um, and is curious and is very independent in thinking, but actually also knows how to work together. It's really a combination of different elements that together comprise of what I think um, are the most critical skills for the future. And so, you know, I always thought that one of the main reasons Israel had a thriving startup ecosystem was because of the way that um, all the youth come up and have to serve time in the military. And that experience is really a um, maturing process and a hardening of, of the inner spirit that then is reflective of all the skills that's required to really set out for yourself and build something. But after reading a book, it's clear that, you know, there's really kind of this deeper cultural upbringing that produces this chutzpah and the military service and the startup scene are actually both reflective of that underlying principle. And so I think that it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to read in the early stages of childhood, how 
children are just kind of allowed to play in like this junkyard area, which kind of cultivates the imagination, right? And when you think about the way a lot of us grow up, at least here in the US, like we're kind of put into these these boxes. It's not as much of a blank slate process growing up here as, as it is in Israel. So, you know, I, I guess the question, you know, what tangible traits do you think something like that process produces in people that directly translates into the entrepreneurial skill set? So, yes, I completely agree with you in terms of the, um, you know, setting the stage for the military, setting the stage for them, the, the tech ecosystem here in Israel through the childhood journey in Israel. And, and I think that throughout the different stages of childhood in Israel, so from very young infancy, as young as, you know, two, three, four years old, like toddlers, and, and then childhood and adolescence, we actually see behaviors that I actually think that most kids around the world actually possess and have. I don't think they're so unique to Israel. And I'll give an example in a second. But what's, what is unique to Israel is actually the reaction of the environment. So it's not the kids that are different. A four-year-old in Israel, in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia, by nature is a very curious human being, right? And a very creative one, by the way. The big question is, how does society, how do the parents, the family, the, the, the siblings, how does the, the, the caregivers, uh, do the caregivers or the, the, the teachers, how does the environment in general react to those behaviors? And in Israel, yes, I agree that the environment is much more open to different types of behaviors and is much less controlled, is much less structured, is less defined and less rigid in a sense. And so growing up in Israel, you actually get a lot of opportunities to train behaviors and personality traits and skills that are more on the creative side, on the entrepreneurial side, on the conflict resolution side, because you, you have no, nobody's solving conflicts for you. No adult will solve a conflict for you. You'll just have to solve it yourself. There's much more emphasis on the group, but the, so a team, a class, a group, a neighborhood, a, a gang of kids in a good sense, okay, that human connection between individuals but at the same time, it is clear that it's totally okay to have your unique voice in that. And that you're actually expected to show, you know, your own capabilities and your own voice. So these are just few examples on, on how the environment influences what I actually think is instilled in each and every person uh, around the world. And, and that's really reflective of the importance of, you know, allowing the, the individual to kind of develop eternally without too much influence from the community around it, but kind of then integrating that in the proper way into the community. Um, in, now, I mean, in your book, you talk about a lot of people or a lot of different stories of people that leave the Israeli Defense Force and immediately go right into starting a company and you know, have, have massive success, which it seems like is pretty common in, in Israel with a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the, 
the value and importance of like the the concept of apprenticeship and going through a period in life where you're you're kind of humbled humble yourself to serve in an apprenticeship type role to someone who's much older wiser and has, has been there and done that i mean that's something that i when i reflect on my journey I, I never really went through that process i kind of dove right out on my own which to be honest was kind of a, a reflection of some internal frustration that had been building up for years of this, um, you know, what Jonathan Haidt talks about in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I kind of, you know, grew up in high school, college, and even when I first entered the corporate world, like I, that, that concept of just being shielded from mistakes and, you know, getting, a, getting eighth, eighth place trophies. Um, and so I, I never really went through an apprenticeship period, but you know, I would just love to get your, your take on, on that, that whole concept. So it, it's interesting that um, if you'll take Switzerland, for example, okay, uh, Switzerland is one of the countries which is um, highest in innovation, mostly thanks to the pharmaceutical industry there. But innovation in Switzerland looks very different than innovation in the US and in Israel. But the reason I'm actually mentioning Switzerland now is because of the apprenticeship model there. So in Switzerland, kids at the age of, I think they start when they're 16, they choose a, you know, uh, a vertical or a discipline or a practice, and they really go and learn from the masters. As a result of that, you have a lot of professionalism there, but you also see less of transition of talent and knowledge from one practice to the other. Now, apprenticeship in Israel looks completely different. It's less structured. It's less strategic in the way it's done. And it's much more about providing the setting for young minds, could be as young as 10, 12, 13, or I don't know, 16, 17, or even after the military, but young, young professionals, or not even professionals, just young minds, providing them with the opportunity to bring value while they're also part of a larger thing than themselves. So it goes hand in hand. They are actually learning from others, but they're not learning best practices and being told that this is how you do things. They're actually learning what's happening now and how things are working, for example, in the military. But from day one, they're being told, if you have a, an idea on how to improve things, we expect you to speak up and tell us what you think. So it's a, it's a constant, and that's a force multiplier, of course, and it, it creates a lot of motivation, right? Because they feel part of the actual doing. They're not passive learners. And I think that this is the optimal format for developing the next generation, if you want, of professionals is, is, yes, showing them how things are done, what are the existing problems, how we think we should solve them. But at the same time, giving them the opportunity and the freedom and, and just the, the, the resources to actually create a change by themselves. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, what, what I think is so fascinating about what you like the stories and everything you talk about in the book is how quickly the youth are expected to take on responsibility 
And I mean, here in the U.S., I think that responsibility is something that is not really talked, not talked about nearly as, as much as we talk about rights. Taking on ownership of things is such an important thing that serving in the military at such a young age as, as people do in Israel is, is something that I think is really profound in amplifying the sense of responsibility people feel. And then as you take that on, your capacity and your effectiveness as a human being is, is exponentially grown. And I think that peace is something that's seriously missing here in the U.S. You know, an, another interesting thing you talk about in, in the book is, and, and you mentioned it with Switzerland, how they're ranked so high in innovation. But on the flip side, Israel is at the bottom, I think you said 40% of uh, like when it comes to math and science in, in school. And that, that's such an interesting insight because it's 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 not something you would expect from one of the leading you know, tech tech and innovation ecosystems in the world, and it's it's you know a little bit reflective of the the old the, how the old method of education in the industrial world is just not really applicable anymore. Right, because the measurement on how you measure success and how you measure accomplishments and how you measure knowledge. Okay, and this is a great example, the PISA tests, right? There's a way of measuring there. And the, the big question is, is that the right way of measuring today? So in these tests, yes, you're right. Uh, 15-year-old kids, that's the age where the, the PISA tests are being uh, um, done all over the world, are doing relatively poorly in Israel. And yet these are the same individuals, okay, that a few years later, are starting the the world's leading tech startups and innovation in a variety of industries. So you're right. There is something here is not optimized in the way either it is uh, represented, probably, Mm -hmm. um, or translated into accomplishments. What's really worrisome, I mean, is is just how much responsibility and ownership is coming down the pipeline for a lot of just the youth of the world to chart their own course and kind of completely, completely get rid of this framework that they've been taught their whole lives and and rebuild their own, rebuild themselves from scratch for a world that they just weren't properly prepared for. I agree with that. I think that there's a reason it's actually, so I'm a parent for, I have three boys. The oldest is 18 years old and the youngest is 11. And, you know, as a parent, it's much easier in a sense, it's easier on an operational side, okay, to control, if you want, the life of your child. Definitely at a young age, but even as they grow, I mean, by by being more controlling, you everything is you have more confidence, you you know, everything is, is much simpler, but not really. And it's much more challenging to give them independence and to to help them find their own voice. But I think that that's like the main value that parents can do is how to help grow a independent, self-sufficient, okay, future individual. And and it's never too early to start in that sense. So you mentioned the responsibility that young Israelis get in the military, but they actually get a lot of responsibility much, much earlier than that. Even at teenage years, uh, even in, in, you know, early childhood, I think that we see evidence in the Israeli day-to-day life 
of just trusting them as, as human beings with more genuine belief in what they can do than in other places. Mm. Right. So my, my favorite quote from the book was, um, we, we survived Pharaoh and we'll survive this too. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that's something that that's like a moment that every entrepreneur can completely resonate with and something we probably face every week, you know, if not, if not every day. So right. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear from you, like, what is your relationship with fear and how, how has it been a positive force in your journey? Wow. Um, it's, it's interesting you're asking me this question, like literally this moment, because uh, just before our conversation, I um, shared a very personal post on social media exactly about fear, like literally 15 minutes before we started. And um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let the audience go and check what that was. But I'll say that for me, um, and Naturally, I have my own set of fears and, you know, and, and, and things that I'm more challenged with. But that's exactly that. For me, fear is actually an opportunity for growth. And it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of intention and it requires a lot of self-awareness to understand what exactly I'm fearing from in each and every case. But once you, you, you're focused, you're targeted in understanding the root of what's holding you back, then it, it's much easier to address that and to grow up from that. Because growing from what we're good at, which is also important, by the way, you know, uh, perfecting or improving the things we're already strong at, I, I think it's also important. But definitely... Facing the things that block us in communication with others, in you know, in in, in challenges in knowledge, in knowledge, um, in 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 so many things, I think that's where we really can grow as individuals. So for myself, it's always about understanding what holds me back and why. And looking, you know, at the fear, eyes wide open and addressing it. It's not easy. Mm. No, I agree. I mean, I, I will never forget the fear that I felt on day one of launching the show. I mean, I was, I, I just quit my corporate job like two, two months in mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I was just kind of sitting there. It was like a really cold morning six in the morning, I had my first interview scheduled and I had, I mean, no idea what, like no idea what I was talking about. And that was just an intense moment, but I intuitively knew that like what I was searching for was on the other side of this fear and that going, yeah. going into it was the answer. Um, and yeah. it was, it, it, it definitely was. And that's a great sense of accomplishment, right? Even if you don't succeed the way you imagined, or even if things don't work out exactly how, you know, you plan for them, just facing and, and trying, it actually already is like, I think 90% of the, of the work, especially for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship by definition is something that, you know, in most, in most cases, in most chances, statistically doesn't really succeed, doesn't really work. And yet entrepreneurs and innovators 
that's how they disrupt. That's how they create new things. And if they were constantly busy with saying, oh, it's impossible. Oh, I can't do that. It just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. So being naive in a sense in addressing the fear is also part of it. Right. Yeah. I think that concept that most, pro- that most things fail, it, it's true, but it's, it's, it's too narrow focus. Like it's, it's looking at individual projects and individual companies. But if you look at the life cycle of like the, the, the entrepreneurial soul, we'll call it, you know, that's, that's the yeah. journey that over time, like the, the riches are there at the end of that. And I, I believe it's, I believe it's guaranteed as long as you keep going. But I would love to hear more about your time with, um, I, I know you were kind of a key, a key person early on with, uh, with Startup Nation Central. Um, and I've uh, interacted with a couple of people from that organization at different conferences, really good group of people. But, you know, in the early days of uh, connecting the kind of global, the outside corporate world to the early, you know, Israeli tech ecosystem, I guess, what, what were some of like the powerful connections that you were able to make and like the um mm-hmm. i guess what was the interest of like all these different corporates coming coming to israel in the early days sure so so just to be you know on on and sing, aligned with, with our guests here we have in israel today over 350 multinationals global tech leaders that have r&d centers in israel and they they serve as a very critical stakeholder within the Israeli ecosystem. Although, of course, they're not Israelis. It's the Intels, the the Apples, the the, um, Googles of the world, they're all here. And um, I think that the the fresh view that I brought into this mature ecosystem already that exists here in Israel is that the one thing that we lack in Israel is actually not funding or innovation or tech talent. It's much simpler than that. It's market because Israel is a country of 9 million people in population. That's it. So it's the size of New Jersey and it's a Hebrew speaking country. It's relatively isolated, you know, in its neighborhood. And so innovating domestically is very limiting. But this distance also creates a gap, a, a gap in market understanding right? Because the market is actually not here. And so I think that the most important role that these uh, multinationals play in Israel is actually serving in a sense as a window to the global markets for Israeli innovation. And once you facilitate, you bridge, and that's exactly what Startup Nation Central does, by the way, it bridges between the global markets out there and their needs their challenges, their innovation, you know, pains. So once you can bring that into Israel, okay, and shorten the distance and facilitate the understanding of the Israeli innovators, the Israeli entrepreneurs in the global market needs, then it's a perfect fit because the Israeli DNA is a very solution-oriented one. In the sense that you just give us a problem, we'll find the quickest, most creative, most efficient solution to a problem. But what is the problem is something that we sometimes lack the understanding of. 
because of that distance. So in my view, this is one of the most important things that actually does happen here. Um, and Israeli entrepreneurs have turned, if you want, the, the bug into a feature in the sense that the fact that Israel is such a small market actually encouraged them not to focus on the Israeli market at all. And so most of the Israeli innovation, most of the startups that come out of Israel, they face global markets from day one. They target these markets from day one and they focus on them and they bring their capabilities, their chutzpah into solving the, the, the most difficult and the most challenging problems and needs that the, innovate, the innovative market leaders are looking for. So what, what do you find, like what direction do entrepreneurs in Israel typically go in when, when they start penetrating global markets? Like, do you find that in most cases they're just going to come to the U.S. and attack that market? Or do they go to Europe, like throughout the, the, the Gulf region maybe? Like what, what, do you, what direction do you, do you feel like uh, or do you see Israeli entrepreneurs yeah. expanding to? Historically and, and still today, the majority of Israeli startups face the U.S. market as their main uh, go-to-market you know, strategy. That's, that's where they will focus the resources for different reasons. Well, obviously the language and the fact that in a sense, there's already um, uh, a very deep exchange of know-how, of networks. Um, the, U the largest U.S. funds have presence in Israel, have um, Israelis on their teams. They already know how to work with Israelis. And, you know, it's a huge market, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one, one definitely the main, still the main market. We do see a growing interest of Israeli startups in um, Europe. But Europe is, is, you know, a large continent which is divided into smaller markets, which makes it a little more challenging. The new uh, peace agreements, of course, with, with the Gulf countries and then the, the UAE is actually opening a completely new wide range of opportunities on both sides, uh, which were not really present till uh, today. So that's definitely uh, a, a new market. And Asia, Asia also, um, so, um, well, China, Japan, um, and South Korea mostly have been relatively interested in the Israeli market um, and acquiring Israeli technologies or collaborating with Israeli startups, investing in Israeli startups, but surprisingly somehow not to the extent that, the, you know, the potential of the size actually has. I think that with the Asian market in general, um, I'm, I'm being very, you know, I'm speaking here in a lot of generalities, um, but in the gap of culture is much bigger than with the US or Europe. Yeah. For Israelis. For sure. For Israelis. Yeah, and, and that makes total sense. I mean, my, my next question is be, what's, what, what's China up to in Israel, if, if anything? Um, but, I mean, I, I, it's, it seems like they are, um, I mean, obviously very focused in Africa. Um, I would assume that a lot of their activity in Israel is kind of focused on some of that more deep tech stuff. Well, a lot of attempts, I would say attempts. I, I actually think that less than, you know, they would want. Right. Okay. So, so there, there's much, the potential for them is, is much bigger than actually 
they see outcomes. I think that Israeli tech entrepreneurs, again, of course, we're, we're again being very, gen we're very, really generalizing here, but the typical Israeli entrepreneur would always prefer to work in English with their, you know, counterparts in, 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 in New York or in San Francisco or in Chicago. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's where they, they feel more comfortable. Right. Makes sense. Well, Imbal Ariali, co-CEO of Synthesis and author of Chutzpah, while Israel is a hub of innovation and entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Andrew.